It's a great pleasure um, today to have not just one um, major figure from uh, the field of international relations, but two um, together in Oxford on the same day, um, neither of whom live close to Oxford, even though one lives in the UK, it's so hard to get here from Aberystwyth. Yeah, it takes him longer than it takes Chris. Um, first of all, um, Chris Reyes-Smith, who's a professor of international relations um, now at the European University Institute in Florence, um, recently moved uh, to Florence, but as, you, as many of you will know, has been for a number of years at ANU and was head of department there. Uh, he's the author of a number of books that many of you will know um, and articles in IR journals, American Power and World Order, The Moral Purpose of the State. Um, of course, his um, very successful and interesting handbook on theories of international relations that he's done with Duncan Snydell, our colleague here. Um, and a new book that's coming out that he spoke to last when he was in Oxford on individual rights and world politics. I haven't got the title quite right. The articles will have a slightly different title from the book. Um, but you may have remembered that um, from when he was here speaking at ELAC last. And he's here along with Ian to speak about a very interesting new um, book project. Ian Clark, who is the EHR, E.H. Carr, sorry, um, Professor of International Politics in Aberystwyth, um, also a fellow of the British Academy. Ian has been working for a number of years on various aspects of legitimacy in international relations um, and has published in that regard Legitimacy in International Society and International Legitimacy in World Society, um, both from OUP. I actually remember a much earlier book, which I was influenced by, called Resistance and Reform, which isn't on your list, but I wanted to raise it because it was a book from years ago that I remember very well in my own work in international relations, and he's coming out with a book soon on hegemony in international society. But they're both co-authors of a project on special responsibilities, which they're here to talk about um, this afternoon. So they've got a, it divided in terms of who's covering what, and I will let Ian go first. Thank you, Jennifer, for the, the introduction and um, for the invitation to be here and for all of you for coming along. Uh, whether you will get anything out of it, I don't know. It's been immensely useful for Kiss and me to have this opportunity of catching up and uh, going through some aspects of, of this particular project. Um, as Jennifer has mentioned, um, we're part of a an international collaboration working on a, a book on special responsibilities and I'll just take a minute or two to outline the project then Chris will talk about the, the main conceptual theoretical elements of it and then I'll come back to, to give some illustration of where this might take us. Um, basically it's um, a book involving six of us and we've been working together on various things for a number of years apart from Chris and myself, Mlada Bukovansky, Robin Eckersley, Dick Price and Nick Wheeler from my own department in, in Aber. Uh, and uh, this is not an edited collection, it will be a, a co-authored uh, book with six of us as, as co-authors. 
Um, it, it's been made possible by an ESRC award that I had, so I acknowledge the ESRC for supporting a number of workshops that have enabled the six of us to get together on a, on a fairly regular basis to, to develop this, um, this project. Um, the, the, the theme of it um, uh, is the, the title Special Responsibilities. As we get into various literatures coming out of what we'd already done on international legitimacy, um, it became very apparent to us that here's a, a, a terminology that is profoundly embedded both in the practice of international relations and in the theory of it. The diverse range of theorists who deploy this term, and it goes from you know, the usual suspects, if you like, Headley and the English school, special rights and responsibilities is a phrase you find in international society literature, as you might expect. Um, but it's a phrase that you find uh, a number of realist theorists regularly deploying. Um, most surprisingly, it's a phrase you'll find in, find in Ken Wallace's book, and you wouldn't really have expected that. So it's a term that is uh, routinely deployed by IR theorists. It's deeply embedded in a lot of diplomatic documentation, and yet it's never been singled out for, for close scrutiny or study. And so that is, uh, that is what we're attempting to do. The book will be partly a historical and a theoretical and a conceptual exploration. It will also be an attempt to apply the concept to three facets of contemporary international relations. And these three facets are climate change, global finance and the uh, issue of nuclear proliferation, the NPT, the NPT regime. So the idea of special responsibilities will be specifically developed in the context of these three policy arenas. So that's basically uh, what we're doing. The, the book is due for delivery to Cambridge University Press uh, in, in a few months' time. Uh, and we'll now turn to Chris, who will give you a flavour of the, the kind of theoretical elements that are part of this project. Okay, I feel like we need a, a baton that we can <laughs> keep passing back here. The, um, just, uh, by the way, I think, I, think uh, I, I can say this especially as somebody who's, who's known as a theorist, that uh, this, is a, this is partly a, a collective uh, experiment, a sort of applied experiment in uh, cooperation among large numbers. So we're, we're trying to see what happens, you know, exactly how far can you stretch this with six authors. Um, I, I do need to say that we, we, we originally started thinking that we would do something edited and then drank too much one day and thought, hey, why don't we raise the bar and just see how, how, how much we can achieve. So um, whether or not this is success, successful, uh, you, you people can tell us down the track. What, um, what I want to do is just to sketch the sort of basic conceptual framework and the key elements of the argument that we want to develop in the book about special responsibilities. And then Ian is going to sort of pick that up and, and talk about it uh, more specifically with regard to um, state practices and a particular reference to the Security Council. 
Um, so let me just just begin. One of the one of the things that we tried to do in the book was to uh, was was to to give some conceptual depth depth to the concept of responsibility and special responsibilities in particular and to, in a sense, go back to the sort of philosophical foundations of this and work up uh, where um, a lot of the literature on this in IR has tended to cut into the question of special responsibilities at the international level but leave a lot of the deeper philosophical questions um, undiscussed. So we tended to start, and one of the key parts of the argument is that we work with a notion of responsibility uh, as, as very closely tied to the idea of accountability. Okay? So that uh, an actor is responsible uh, for a particular set of actions or from refraining from a particular set of actions uh, when they are considered to be accountable for those actions. We, we, we had a long argument about the relationship between the idea of responsibility and the idea of accountability uh, and make an argument that, that responsibility is often spoken about as though it simply means causality. So earthquakes caused the death of X number of people or flooding caused the damage in Brisbane in, in Australia. Uh, we make an argument that in fact these are not synonyms, that causality can be part of a discussion of responsibility, but the key thing about responsibility uh, is that when we describe someone, an actor, as responsible, we are saying that they are accountable for those particular outcomes. Now that's important because what we want, because that gives responsibility um, an inherently social dimension. Okay, so responsibility is, and ideas of responsibility and practices of responsibility are things that are embedded within social relationships um, because that's, and that's the kind of key, that's our starting point is this notion of accountability. We spend some time making a number of uh, key distinctions between different kinds of responsibility of which, of which the last is most important to us. And the, the distinctions we make are First of all, between positive and negative responsibilities. So uh, an example of a positive responsibility would be the responsibility of an actor to engage in particular kinds of actions. Uh, a negative responsibility would be for an actor to refrain from engaging in particular kinds of actions. And this, this does relate to the distinction between negative and positive rights, but we also have an argument about the, the, the problematic nature of that distinction, but we make it anyway. Um, we distinguish between historical and prospective responsibilities. So responsibilities for things that have occurred in the past as opposed to responsibilities that, have, have, that might happen in the future or things that may transpire in the future. You know, Saddam Hussein was responsible for the death of the, Kur, the, uh, the gassing of Kurds. Um, uh, great powers are responsible for the maintenance of international order. The second of those is a prospective responsibility. The first is a, is a historical responsibility. The next distinction we make is a distinction between moral and legal responsibilities. And we note that this is in fact a, a kind of com complex and controversial relationship. Uh, we, just as a rough hand, we talk about uh, moral responsibilities being responsibility uh, framed in reference to particular kinds of social norms, whereas legal responsibility is responsibility framed in terms of particular legal precepts or rules or statutes. Um, the most important distinction we make, however, and this goes to the, to the heart of the project, is the distinction between general responsibilities and special responsibilities. Uh, and, and I'll just spend a, a moment on this. 
because the book is about special responsibilities, principally. General responsibilities, we argue, are the responsibilities that all actors or all members of a given social order or parties to a particular regime of social cooperation. Okay, so you can disaggregate social orders down to smaller regimes of social cooperation and you can talk about um, uh, general responsibilities in either of those contexts. But the key thing about a general responsibility is it's a general responsibility that everybody has. Okay? A special responsibility, in contrast, is a responsibility that, that is held only by particular parties or particular members of a social order or particular members or particular parties to a regime of social cooperation. So, in, in IR, this would be, you know, there are certain responsibilities that all states have not to engage in aggression, acts of aggression. That would be a general responsibility of all states. A special responsibility is the responsibilities, for example, that the great powers might have, particular responsibilities they have for the maintenance of international order. Uh, now, we do also talk about how special responsibilities are defined not just by the particularity of those that hold them, but also by the values that we attach to them. That we very often think about special responsibilities as special in the sense that they are highly valued. And here we make an argument, this is not always the case, but it is sometimes the case. And we make the argument that this is very much related to the rights that special responsibilities convey. So special responsibilities that convey significantly empowering rights and entitlements as part of the fulfilment of those responsibilities often carry high levels of social esteem attached to them. So that's general and special. Okay? Now, we then make an argument in the book about the centrality of ideas and practices of responsibility to the constitution of social orders. Now, this is partly because responsibility being related to accountability, it is inherently relational concepts, so it's therefore social. It's also based on decisions about or ideas about responsibility and judgments about responsibility are usually made with reference to intersubjective social norms, so it's social in that respect. But it's also social in, um, in two other very important regards uh, for this particular project. The first is that ideas about responsibility and practices of responsibility are central in the constitution of social roles, which of course are also related to social identities. In fact, one of the arguments we make is that in one sense it makes sense to think about social roles as aggregations of responsibility. So we have an argument that responsibility is central to the constitution of social orders because of the role that it plays in constituting social roles. The second argument we make is that responsibilities shape societies through their impact on the development and constitution of social power. A responsibility is, is, in a sense, one kind of a legitimate power. And I'll say more about this in a moment. To have a responsibility is to have a licence to act in a particular way 
ought to constrain oneself or what withhold acting in a particular kind of way. And we talk about, we have an argument about um, about the relationship between responsibility and what uh, Barnett and Duval call compulsory power. Uh, and we have an argument about the relationship between responsibility and structural power in the book. Uh, now finally, because responsibility is so closely related to the distribution of legitimate social power, controversies and contestations over responsibility are core sites for the struggle for power in international politics. So this is an argument. This is a, this is a, this is a, this is one of the arguments that we play. We make about the kind of place of responsibility in the nature of social orders is that these are sites for political struggle because with them come significant forms of social power or significant forms of social power um, congeal or coalesce around practices of responsibility. Okay, now we make, just to sort of wrap up what I'm going to say, let me talk about the three big arguments we make in the book, okay, on top of the little ones we've just made. Um, The first is an argument about the place of responsibility in anarchic international orders. We argue that the politics of special responsibilities, that is the distributing of responsibilities to particular actors within an international order, arises in the context, it arises particularly in international orders in which two other political modalities have proven insufficient for addressing certain functional problems of global governance. And they might be as basic as provision of essential order in international order through to more advanced governance objectives. And the two political modalities that we're talking about are at the one extreme, the free play of material power politics, and at the other extreme, regimes of sovereign equality. And we make an argument that it's in, it's in the context of the failure of both of those kinds of political practices to address global governance issues that you get the emergence of politics of special responsibilities as a way of channeling, harnessing and constraining the exercise of power in the service of the pursuit of particular functional goals. So that's the, that's, that's the first big argument, is about the place of the kind of almost the structural position of the politics of special responsibilities in particular kinds of international orders. The second argument is an argument that distributions of responsibilities have a significant bearing on the distribution of power in international systems. This is, a, this is a, an, an, in a sense, an elaboration of the point I made earlier. But the argument we make here is that it is around ideas of responsibility, or more pointedly, ideas about responsibility and practices of responsibility become constellation points around which social power is constructed. 
So we have, and and we can, you know, because of time, I won't go into this. But we have, um, if we think about, um, we make an, we also make an, a distinction between simple and international and complex international orders. Simple international orders, um, uh, the differentiation is is across three dimensions: structures of political agency, interdependence and dynamic density and functional imperatives. In simple international orders, you have relatively simple structures of political agency, low levels of interdependence and dynamic density, and and relatively few uh, key functional imperatives. The opposite is the case in complex orders. We make a particular this is important for us in what we talk about how regimes of special responsibilities develop. But most importantly, what we want to argue here is that it's within these different kinds of orders that the distribution of responsibility affects the distribution of social power. Now, the third big argument we make is an argument about is an argument about uh, social domains. And here, we're really, I mean, in some ways, you can think of um, uh, you can think of uh, here we are making a, a significant departure, I think, from the way in which special responsibilities have been discussed in the literature so far, which tends to assume uh, a singular view of the international system. So that you have an international system, you have an array of particular actors, and you have a distribution of special responsibilities, usually to great powers. Uh, and this, But what we want to do in here is, one of the arguments of the book is, is to say, well, in complex orders... There is no single distribution of special responsibilities. What you have is different social domains that are, that are issue domains in which you get different distributions of special responsibilities. And this relates to our case study. So part of the argument is that in the case of climate change, in the case of, um, in the case of nukes, and in the case of global finance, that you have different distributions of special responsibilities that are emerging in those those um, functional domains. So that's the kind of that's the kind of gives you a sense of the kind of schema of the big argument. And now Ian's going to put some flesh on it. Well, we'll we'll attempt to. Um, I'll say just a little bit about how I think the history of special responsibilities has has evolved and then for purposes of illustration I'll spend a few minutes talking about the Security Council. Um, I had agreed with Jennifer quite some time ago that I would relate this to the Security Council. Not quite sure why I agreed to do that because <laughs> it's not one of the case studies that we do so this is kind of uh, uh, beyond the, the, the pale but um, it, it does seem to me that it would have been an excellent case study to do and the idea I think uh, translates rather well into the, the context of the, the history of the, the, the Security Council the, um, the historical argument that I would like to, to run past you um, is that as I see it I think a practice of the special preceded a theory of the responsible and the theory of the responsible has in a sense been catching up with a practice that was already in place. Now what do I mean by that? 
the, the, the practice of the special and I, I, I in the, the, the chapter where we discuss the history we're, we're kind of dating this in the early 19th century with the, the emergence of a notion of the great powers a formalised notion of the great powers which is a position a number of historians take on this um, the, the category of the uh, the, the special was deemed to be already in existence. We knew who they were. The special ones, if I can use a Chelsea metaphor for those of the faith who know what that means, um, the special ones were already known. They were the great powers. We didn't have to work out who the special category were. They were there. They were the great powers. And it seems to me the interesting development is that with the formalisation of a principle of the great powers, that their role in international society has come to be rationalised in terms of the bearing of responsibilities. And that's interesting. It presumably could have been otherwise. But that is exactly the language that has dominated the discussion of the role of the great powers for 200 years in Hedley Bull's terminology the great responsibles you know, that's what great powers are um, and so in a sense rather than it being the responsibilities per se that are special it's the category of actors to which these responsibilities attach that is deemed to be special and initially, in terms of emerging practice, that was already known. They were the great powers. We didn't need to otherwise worry about who the special ones were. Um, things have moved. They have evolved from that. I think the basic uh, ideas underpinning this emerged early in the 19th century. The precise language of special responsibilities, as far as we've been able to unearth, um, really emerges in the interwar period. And that's already quite interesting. Why so? I think it's part of the move towards uh, a theory of collective security, which you could argue fudged the issue of responsibility. <laughs> And the notion of special responsibilities was a renewed attempt to unfudge what had been sold under the auspices of this particular doctrine. If security is collective, when it comes, when push comes to shove, who's responsible for producing it? And the answer again, of course, was the great powers. Only those with the wherewithal to produce security could be held responsible because the others simply couldn't deliver on anything that they signed up to. And in actual treaties in the interwar period, you find this terminology of special responsibilities being written into international legal texts. And so, I mean, this has been around in a formal sense for better part of a century and yet no one has ever attempted or thought it was worthwhile to try and unpack what that language was meant to 
meant to convey. The language really comes to the fore in the period of the Second World War itself and during the the mid-1940s I could give you a number of quotations where this this language is is used uh, towards the end of the war, the very famous uh, book by uh, W.T.R. Fox uh, that, uh, that introduces the notion of the superpowers, the language of the superpowers, he uses the language of special responsibilities. That's a, a 1944 uh, text. Um, but it wasn't just the, the, the academic commentators, it was the practitioners too. And if you look at the, uh, the drafting of the UN Charter, Dumbarton Oaks and then San Francisco, this language of special responsibilities is pervasive in all of the texts of that, that period. Um, President Truman, just to reassure you that this is not being invented by us, talks about um, the great powers at the, at the conference. These great states have a special responsibility to enforce the peace. Britain's... Uh, Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden at the same time um, a special responsibility lies on the great powers and so the background to the drafting of the, the, the charter is absolutely pervaded by this language of special responsibilities it's interesting um, Gary Simpson the international lawyer at LSE has an interesting chapter on this um, and, and it shows you the pervasiveness of this language and yet uh, it was the great powers he says, I haven't been able to quite uh, track down the, the basis for this uh, that actually argued against that precise form of words being incorporated in the charter itself and it's interesting to, to, to think why that might have been so um, also interesting to remember in the context of what I'm now about to say about some of the debates about the Security Council composition and membership, both back at San Francisco in 45, and then in the last few years, um, the debate about the restructuring of the Security Council that has gone on, that I would argue, we would argue, <laughs> uh, can be seen as a specific manifestation of a debate about different understandings of the nature of the special and who therefore should bear responsibilities in, in, in its terms. Um, I think it was Hans Kelsen in an early text that pointed out um, that the Security Council was of course constructed on a principle of it bearing a special responsibility for international security that was exactly its rationale but the important point that he, uh, Kelson made about this was of course that responsibility was assigned to the Security Council as a whole not simply to the P5 it was the Security Council that bore that responsibility and of course the Security Council is composed not just of great powers it is uh, a more varied uh, body, body than that. But if you go back uh, to the debates about the membership 
of the Security Council, Dumbarton Oaks, uh, and all the rest of it. I think, I think there you can easily tease out competing understandings of what made certain powers special and what might then have entitled them to be permanent members of this august body at the time. It was a debate about the specialness because this was no longer taken quite so much for granted in the way that it had perhaps been a hundred years before. And uh, without going into all the details, I think you, you find competing notions of the specialness that would entitle membership of the council in terms of either uh, a contribution to the successful conclusion of the, the war itself, you know, the victors had a special entitlement, um, or a notion of future capacity, the membership of the Security Council, those that were to be really responsible because they had the power to act, must have a capacity for the maintenance of international order. There was a set of arguments about a notion of sacrifice, those that had made the biggest sacrifice, and you, you, you could say in some ways maybe France and China kind of got in there <laughs> uh, as much on that criterion as, 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 as any other. Uh, and elsewhere, and this becomes very, very important to, to our discussion, um, the, the responsibility was the other half of a bargain, the other half of the bargain being the special privilege, and the special privilege was the voting procedures on the Security Council, and hence the veto. So, um, just as the, the role of the great powers in the 19th century was to be rationalised in terms of their responsibility for the maintenance of order. You could say that uh, a sub-argument in 1944-45 was that the special privileges that were to be given to the few, the P5 in the Security Council, was part of a, a contract, the other half being the special responsibilities that would attach to the privileges that they were being, being granted. Um, George C. Marshall in 1945 um, insisted, I quote, the so-called special privilege of the great powers is matched by its equivalent in special responsibilities. So there you have it. So I, I, I think what we would say then in terms of the devising of the UN Charter and the specific structure of the Security Council, it, it emerged from a contestation at the time about who were the special actors that would be entitled to the special privileges of permanent membership of the Council. And then for the rest of international society, what was the other half of the bargain? What were the special responsibilities that they would bear uh, in, in the light of that? And I, I think if we fast forward to the, the last decade or so, especially the, the middle part of uh, the first decade um, of, of, of this century, the 
the high point of the debate about restructuring the Security Council and perhaps expanding it and the debates about who the new members of the P5 might be and I don't want to rehearse that, uh, that whole debate. Uh, I think what we would simply say is that this is a rehearsal of debates about what makes certain actors special and therefore uh, subject to the bearing of special responsibilities and the, the kinds of debates and you know you'll be thoroughly familiar with all of these so I, I won't go into the details of them but simply to relate them to to the kind of arguments in our, our project um, the, the, the kinds of competing claims that we have seen made about an entitlement to a seat permanent seat or semi-permanent seat in the Security Council um, are all slightly different claims about the nature of the special and why there should be a practice that would make certain um, in this case certain states special in terms of the, the, the UN structure um, one is an argument I guess basically about a material capacity to contribute to global governance in its various, uh, various aspects and so the generalised argument about the need to make the UN Security Council reflect today's balance of power rather than the balance of power in 1945 is exactly a version of that. Uh, why is it important to reflect the realities of power today? Um, because the permanent members need to be those with a capacity to contribute to the management of international order. So it seems to me that that is the, the, the logic of that argument. Um, the, the, the quite different kind of position that you'll be familiar with is, is the argument from representativeness. And that's a different argument about what makes the permanent members special. Not necessarily that they have the greatest capacity to do things, but that in terms of a theory of legitimacy, and at the end of the day that's basically what we're here to sell you today, uh, another way of thinking about how international legitimacy plays out in international relations, is that representativeness is a proxy for legitimacy. Um, it wouldn't be acceptable uh, to uh, continue to preclude Africa from permanent membership. It won't be uh, acceptable to preclude some of the emerging BRIC countries you know, from being. Uh, so there is a capacity element in there, but there's also a slightly different argument about the need to represent all the, the major uh, spheres of, of, of international society. And both of these arguments, as you know, uh, come up against uh, the Trump card that the major P5, the United States and China, have kind of played, basically because um, of their own individual interests about who they would like and not like to be seated at the, the, the council. Um, the, the contrary argument um, uh, that the 
the special responsibility of the Security Council to maintain international order means it has to have the capacity to act. And both of the former sets of arguments run contrary to, to that kind of principle. So the, the US has for years insisted under Obama, it continues to insist that whatever changes are made to the membership of the council, it must be effective in terms of its ability to deliver on its special responsibility for international security. So I, I think the debate about the future of the Security Council can quite readily be understood under our scheme because it seems to me that the debate about membership is in effect a debate about special responsibilities and who should be bearing them. Thank you. Thank you. Well, and thanks for perfectly timed at 20 minutes each.